So to get some context, we'll go through 1 Timothy 1 briefly, 1 through 17, because it's been a little bit for us. 1 Timothy 1, 1 and 2 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, our only hope, Jesus Christ, to Timothy, I'm speaking to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the apostolic greeting as he opens his epistle to one individual. And I wonder how many letters uh, written from one person to another have been used to teach masses. Think about how many people are benefiting throughout the church history from Paul's relationship with Timothy. For those of you just joining us, it is a second hour snow day and uh, we are broadcasting live and we actually do have a live studio audience. It's good to see everybody is able to make it today. And uh, if you didn't get the email, um, that's something to remind us. We'll get you the email uh, account so we can tell you emails. And if you did and you came anyway, bonus points. So anyway, um, <laughs> first three just as I encourage you to remain in Ephesus when I travel to Macedonia, when I will go to Macedonia, so that you will instruct some not to teach strange doctrines. So Paul would go and strengthen the Ephesian believers, but he can't because he's got work in Macedonia. But he has replicated himself. He's made a disciple out of Timothy. And so he can send Timothy with this charge. And here's the charge. You need to teach them. Instruct some not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to, to myths and endless genealogies, which cause speculative argument rather than, than the administration of God, which is by faith. So the teaching of God's word is the way God in this age develops the body of Christ. It is the teaching of the word of God and the power of the spirit, but not just any teaching, not just anything. It's got to be branded with Jesus Christ. It's the teaching of Jesus Christ. That's how you will receive the administration of God, this work of God in this age to develop you the word oikonomia, the household order of the house of God, the body of Christ. And this comes by faith in the word of God, not in the teachings of men. So the goal, the desired end state, the telos of instruction, Paul says, is love, agape, love from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the language Paul uses to describe what we're going for. And so it's very helpful for us to remember that you know that you're on the right track if you keep your goal in view. And if you lose sight of your goal, you could go, uh, you could, you could veer off the path. So this is what we're going for. And it's, it's great to know this little summary statement from Paul. The gospel ministry has this agape love. It's the love of God, which God has for God that he shed abroad in our hearts. It's the fruit of the spirit. It's agape. It's the love of God through us that that's what's being matured in us in first Thessalonians three, that's what's growing in us therefore. And so that's what we're looking for as that tell us. I've taught before Galatians chapter five, verse 22 is the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, and all the things, all of those things that the fruit of the spirit are in Galatians five, 22 and 23, Paul's list of the fruit of the spirit. All of those things are things love does in first Corinthians 13. In other words, I think the punctuation would be the fruit of the spirit is love comma or colon joy, peace, patience, goodness, the things of, I can't get the list in my head, uh, out of my memory, but, but the list of the fruit of the spirit, love rejoices 
in the truth. Love suffers long. Love is patient. You know, love is, love is kind. That's all things that love does when you talk about what God is doing in you. So this really is the test. Now, the love of God spread, shed abroad in our hearts, the love that we're talking about is the love of John 3.16. Same word, same source, and therefore defined in that context. What does love look like? according to the scriptures, this love of God. We don't need to put an adjective in front of it and talk about a different type of love. We'll just say the agape that we're required to express that Jesus says, love one another, agapao, love one another as I've loved you in John 13, 34. It is defined for us, I argue, in John three sixteen, the most famous verse in English in the Bible. For God so loved agapao, he loved the world. How did he love the world? He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Love is that which was expressed in the giving of the son so that we could have eternal life. In other words, what God wants for us was accomplished by the sending of the son. And so what God wants for us, eternal life was effected by God loving us through sending his son. Love does what is necessary for someone to have what God wants them to have. Love is the great commission. It is the evangelizing unbelievers because God wants them to have eternal life. Love is the, um, is the great commission. God wants believers to grow in the word and obey him. And so love, what God wants for the other is, um, is if you get hold of that, then now we know what our objective is. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We broke down what those words mean, what those things mean in context, but it's basically your inner equipment. It's your spiritual life, that you have a real functioning spiritual life mechanically. But departing from these things, some men have turned aside to worthless talk, wanting to be law teachers, but not understanding either that about which they're speaking or concerning what things they make confident assertions. It's been a problem in the church since the 60s or the 50s AD. I think this is about 61, 62 when Paul writes this. I think he dies, 63 AD. Um, this is somewhere between 63 and 68. We don't really have biblical testimony on this portion of the history of Paul's life. It's we're way past the book of Acts now, but look, they want to be law teachers, but they don't even know what they're talking about. And so they make confident assertions when someone's confident and dogmatic and certain, we really tend to think, Oh, we're, we're impressed. Wow. Well, well, either he's crazy or he's confused and he thinks he knows, or he really knows. And we want to be generous and give people the benefit of the doubt. And so when someone's absolutely dogmatic, we want to just take it on faith. That's leadership, baby. That's how it works. But the thing is, how do you know what you know? And just because someone is very confident in what they say doesn't mean that they're right. And that's a con man. Sometimes con men don't know they're, they're, on, they're, they're a con man. They don't know they're working a, a, a deception. And, uh, but I think most of the time they do. In verses 8 through 11, now we know that the law is good. Let me, let me get out of the Greek real quick and get to the just the English summary, because we are summarizing. Now we know that the law, the Mosaic law is good. If someone makes lawful use of it, in other words, if you interpret it in the time which was written for the purpose, which was given, if you properly handle the Mosaic law, that's to rightly divide or properly cut straight the word of truth. The law is good. If someone makes lawful use of it, as Will was talking about first hour in John chapter one, the law was given so that man would see his need and Israel would be the picture for the world to see they need a savior because they have to do these sacrifices because they break God's perfect righteous standards. 
the law was necessary to show us the Messiah, and the Messiah was necessary to fulfill the law. And these are not in contrast to another. It's a long story. We find ourselves on the other side of Jesus fulfilling the law by dying for our sins on the cross. Knowing this, that for a righteous man, the law is not appointed. And this is the point I'm making. The law was given so we'd see our sin. Unrighteous, the, the law was appointed for unrighteous and rebellious, ungodful, ungodly and sinners, unworshipful, profane, father killers, mother killers, murderers, fornicators, uh, effeminate, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and any other practice that opposes sound teaching according to the standard of the gospel of the glory of the blissful or the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Verse 11 is one of my personal proof texts and my understanding of systematic theology for that God exists in eternal bliss. The blessed God doesn't just mean that we're all down here worshiping God and blessing him and praising his name. It means something about his essential experience that he exists in bliss. And that's why I've translated it this way. It's actually the word makarios, makarios. It sounds strange to me when I read it in English, the blissful God. But think about this for a second. Makarios always means happy. It always means someone's state of mind that's favorable and a, and a joy, it's joyful. It means that God is existing in eternal bliss. Theological side note, I insist and absolutely believe that God exists in eternal bliss. I also believe with you that God is eternal, that he is not constrained by time. He doesn't learn new things. And so nothing surprises him. So our experience is very different from his, no matter how close to him we are in terms of bearing his image. What are we saying? We're saying that if God exists in eternal bliss, and he knows all the knowable from the beginning of history to the end. And he does, according to the scriptures. If you combine the doctrine of God's happiness or eternal bliss with the doctrine of God's eternality, with the doctrine of God's omniscience, all the knowable. You with me on all these basic doctrines we all kind of assume? If that's true, then think about what it means that he has constant, present, eternal access to the truth of the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross that he knew from eternity past and was never, it never wore off on him. It never gets to be less of an awareness. Like when we get hurt and we've kind of, we kind of, the, the memory kind of fades with God, that never happens. Okay. The sufferings of the cross, the heartache of Jesus Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The absolute horror of the Golgotha suffering where darkness covers the face of the hill of the, of the skull is the name of that that hill where Jesus was crucified in the mountains of Moriah. When Jesus Christ suffered for us, this was a moment in history, but God knew it experientially from eternity past and will forever know this experience. And yet God exists in eternal bliss. And what that means is, in my understanding, that the joy of God's righteousness, the enjoyment of God's perfect character and his... Uh, <clears throat> The, the, the co-equal relationship between the persons of the Trinity from eternity past and forever and ever. This is greater by far than the worst sins or the worst experience over sin, the death of Christ on the cross that could ever exist. In other words, when people want to say everything's bad and they get pessimistic and they look around and they say all is bad, or they say, why would a good God let bad things happen? The doctrine of the bliss of God, that God exists in eternal bliss because of greater things than the greatest horrors that we can imagine. That the eternal state is without any shadow of sin or, or wickedness. When you understand God's big picture, 
it helps us understand that, um, yeah, there are wicked things, but there are great things to come. So we think of heaven as a place of the abode of God, the place of bliss. And that's the way we should think of it. Nevertheless, one word, the, the makarios, uh, God, the God of, of, of happiness and bliss. In verse 12, and I give thanks to him who strengthened me, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he regarded me faithful so that he put me into service. So he thought of me from eternity past and looked at me and knew what I would be. And so he put me into service knowing that I would be faithful. And despite beforehand being a blasphemer and persecutor and a violent aggressor, but I was given mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. This is, uh, remember that Paul, as Saul of Tarsus, did his best to destroy the church. And that's why he says he's the worst sinner. He's the worst sinner because he did the worst sin. He tried to destroy the body of Christ. And so he is a violent aggressor and it was acting in unbelief. I've heard people say, well, Paul, Paul was as a Pharisee, you know, he believed in God in the Old Testament sense. So he was saved, but then he hadn't received Christ. And so they've got this weird, you know, third position of the believer from the Old Testament order who didn't receive the Messiah. And I believe from this passage and from what Jesus says about his sheep hear his voice in John, I think that there's no such person. I don't think there was ever an Old Testament saint that when Jesus came or when John the Baptist prophesied that missed it. I think everybody who was a believer uh, in the Old Testament order of the, the coming Messiah, when, they, when the Messiah came, they received him because he came to, to his, because his sheep hear his voice. So he says, I acted ignorantly in unbelief here. So I think Paul is definitely before this, before the, the road uh, to Damascus event, he's an unbeliever, but the grace of our Lord abounded exceedingly with faithfulness and love in Christ Jesus. So he did make me faithful. He did make his love abound in me. And so I am able to serve him. Now notice he said, he looked at me and saw that I would be faithful. And then he says, the grace of God, despite my failures in my past behavior has made me abound exceedingly with faithfulness and love in Christ Jesus. This is the grace of God in us. It is a faithful word and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But because of this, I received mercy so that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering. What that means is that Jesus Christ dealing with me would show his care and his long suffering, his great patience with me, the worst sinner. That's what he's saying about himself. And what this means is that Paul is demonstrating Christian humility, where we never get self-righteous about what a moral or good person we are in comparison to the wicked people around us. We say that they, like us, are sinners, and most of them, unlike us, haven't received salvation by grace through faith. And so we have this in common with them, but we have something we'd like to share with them. We are sinners, but we are saved by grace. And so Jesus is going to show all long suffering for a pattern, a pattern. This is the uh, hupo, hupotuposis. That's a great word, isn't it? Hupotuposis. In that, in the middle of that word is tup, tupos. It's the word for type, T-Y-P-E in English comes from T-U-P in uh, T-U-P-O-S in Greek. So for a type, for a, and this word is not very commonly used in Greek, but it generally means a pattern. It might be a pattern that a student would use to learn to write. Like we would draw a dotted 
a dotted line version of the letter and then the student would trace over it. But this is the idea that he would be the pattern for those who watch him to say, okay, so beforehand we've got things that we could be proud of, like our accomplishments in the flesh, our, our learning, our education, our, our job, whatever, you know, our intelligence, whatever it is that we boast in. And we like Paul would have to then look at Jesus Christ and say, everything I could boast in in myself, I can consider rubbish because I received Jesus Christ and I have real riches. I have the real treasure. And then I can look back at my former failures and say, I was a total uh, sinner and rebel against God. And there's nothing about me that, that should draw his kindness or his favor because it's all about his grace and his character, despite my failures. But then I look at the Lord Jesus Christ and say, but despite all the wickedness that I brought, Jesus Christ saved me from my sin. And he has made me everything that is worth, worth being. And so for me to live as Christ. And so Paul is saying he's the pattern for those who are not yet, but about to believe upon him unto eternal life. Now that's a summary of the, the mission and the ministry of the apostle Paul, whoever he's speaking to in any crowd, there may be a few. And generally in the Roman world, there's a few like on Mars Hill, not many, but a few are about to believe on him. And so he gets to be a pattern and illustration. Notice the horrible humiliating sense where he's got to say to Timothy and for all of our benefit, I'm the worst sinner in the church age because of the, the gravity of the sin as an unbeliever of trying to destroy the fledgling, the infant body of Christ as it's just getting started. I'm the worst. I'm the man holding Stephen's robes in uh, Acts chapter seven. And so there is no room for Paul in bragging. There is no room for for uh, self-importance or, uh, or self-promotion or self-congratulation. The only thing Paul lives for is to represent Jesus Christ. And in him, Paul says, is his only boast. The only reason he has for boasting is in Christ. And so he is a pattern for those, you and I, who because of this ministry have believed upon Jesus Christ unto eternal life. How did you get eternal life? You believed upon him unto eternal life. That's how you get eternal life. Might want to underline that one if you're ever wondering, did I have it? Did I really get it? I mean, I didn't really feel, I don't feel, I don't feel the life. Well, it's not electricity, and, um, but it is, it is power. And you can go back to what God's word says here and says, if you believe upon him, that's how you receive eternal life. One of the hundreds and hundreds of places in the New Testament that tells you how. In verse 17, now to the king. Eternal, immortal, invisible, God only wise, honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And you've got to supply a verb in English, be, to him, be the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. A short doxology to praise God for his so great salvation. So Paul in this little, Timothy knows Paul very well. They've traveled, they've talked, they've, they've worked together. They've suffered together. They've served together. They have tried to figure out what they're going to get to eat on the, on the missionary trip together. They've really shared each other's lives. And this is a very intimate thing Paul does by demonstrating how he is a trophy of God's grace. And the more he says that he's a trophy of God's grace, the more you and I say that we're a trophy of God's grace, the more you and I need to recognize that that means that we didn't bring anything of value. And so what really matters about us, what really is of value is what he's done with us because we brought sin, 
We brought our self-importance. We brought our self-promotion. And we had truly to repent of that. By the way, you have to. There is, the people want to argue about repentance and faith and, and salvation. For you and I to say, uh, my Savior is Christ. You saved me from my sins. I'm already saying my sense of, of high view of self, that I'm good enough. I've already changed my mind from that dominant sin of arrogance that, that has us all deceived. That's, that is, in my view, the repentance from sin that is absolutely essential for us to let go of our pride and say, I need a savior. Paul is the trophy. You and I, little trophies. The more you think of yourself that way, the less important, the less self-important you and I will be. Verse 18, moving forward, this is the charge I'm entrusting you, child Timothy, according to the prophecies made beforehand concerning you, so that by them you may wage the good war by having faith and a good conscience, which some, after, after rejecting, have suffered shipwreck concerning the faith, of whom are Humenios, sorry, Humenios and Alexandros, whom I have given over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. What is going on in uh, 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. You're not supposed to name people who are falling short of God's plan. You know, that's not, that's not Christian uh, etiquette. Actually, Paul does, and it's very helpful for Timothy. Important to know, it's a minister talking to a minister, and he's equipping him for it. And he's going, you're going into the mouth of, of the, the battle. I'm sending you into war in Ephesus against arrogance and false teaching. And you're going to have to be careful how you, how you do it. We read in chapter three, what you're, or chapter four, how to behave and conduct yourself with these elderly men and, and so forth and, and be a brother and a son. Don't, don't go uh, trying to be the boss, go in humble, but he's sending them to fight. He's sending Timothy into a war. And so he says, this is the charge. This is the charge I'm entrusting to you child Timothy. And certainly I would like to dig down. Parangalia is one possible meaning of this word is charge. Another is command. My new American standard in verse 18 says this command I entrust to you. But when you read that word command as a Bible reader, we're trying to look for which one, which commandment, where is it? What's the command? It's all that has proceeded. I'm sending you to go speak the truth as a humble trophy of grace to these people that are being led astray by false teachers. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you in there to shoot down the false teaching. And that charge I'm trusting you to child Timothy comes with some weight behind it. According to the prophecies made beforehand concerning you. So there were prophecies. This is the age of the early church. This is the portion in the church age when we have special revelation going forth from the Lord Jesus in the power of the spirit to apostles and prophets. And this is, this is prior. Timothy does not have a copy of the new Testament. He doesn't have a copy. Well, he now has a copy of first Timothy, right? But he doesn't have all that we have, but he does have some prophetic revelation that God is delivering. And that's again, beloved, why we have the new Testament because the early church was characterized by the doctrine of prophecy. And I contend that's what the doctrine of prophet, the, 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 the gift of prophet was, was to give us the word of God. And we now have it in 27 books of the new Testament uh, to which the apostle John said, do not add anything to this. So we have bound our Bibles. We do not add extra pages in the back to copy new things that God might have occurred to us because we believe that this is an early church ministry, but that's what's going on with Timothy. So he has the word of God directly spoken by a prophet, by, by prophetic utterance concerning his personal ministry, something you and I might like to have. God, what do you want me to do with my life? Timothy had it. 
and it was a beautiful thing. So these prophecies were made beforehand concerning you so that by them you may wage the good war. Pastor Dave, my English Bible is a little bit more uh, tame. It says that you may fight the good fight. That's what the New American Standard has. The, um, the King James says that you may wage the good warfare. And the reason is because the words here are different than fight, but they mean uh, essentially the same thing. The, il the illustration that Paul is using here is of a soldier fighting in combat. It's uh, stratuo and stratea, where we get the word strategy. Stratiotes are, are soldiers, warriors. And so all these words that are all related have to do with waging war. By having faith and a good conscience, this is how you fight faith and a good conscience. What uh, in our weapons of our warfare and the full armor of God, what is the thing, the one thing we know of that can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one? Well, that'd be the shield of faith. And in Ephesians 6, it doesn't say the shield of faith. It says the shield of the faith. And uh, so we'll talk about faith in a minute, but, um, but these are the essentials, the faith and a good conscience. And I contend faith either means that which is believed the truth, the word, or the believing itself, the trust that one has in that which is believed. Faith and a good conscience. He doesn't tell you which one, but I contend in context, the way you, it isn't just faith in general, faith in, I, I just believe good things are going to happen. It's faith in God's truth. It's faith in God and his word. That's the external standard, that which is believed. The external standard to us is God's word. The internal working of that standard is your conscience. That's how these things work together. So I contend it's the thing that is believed and the good conscience that results. That's how you fight the war, which now speaking of faith and a good conscience, which some after rejecting these have suffered shipwreck concerning the faith, the faith I'm talking about they're they're broken in their spiritual lives. Among, among these who have rejected the mechanics of waging the good war, since you are in a fight, we don't realize it, but we're at war. Peter says, be on the alert because Satan's walking around like a, like a lion looking for someone to devour. He says, of whom are humenios? We say Hymenaeus, but the, the Y would be you. His mama called him humenios. The E gets the accent, humenios. And we know this is Alexander, but I just wanted you to hear it in Greek. It's Alexandros, Alexandros, like, like in Russian, Alexei. They, they put the emphasis on the second syllable. We say Alexander, they say Alexandros. Just, just a little Hebrew, little, sorry, Greek flavor, because it's not originally in English. And if you called this guy, hey, Alexander, he would be like, Alexander. Alexandros, totally different sound. Anyway, uh, all those named Alexander in English, go with it. It's how we say it in English. Not a problem. Just saying, get a little Greek flavor because this is, this is, this is an actual person who had an actual problem. He had shipwreck concerning the faith. Now, Paul says their shipwreck, their faith is shipwrecked. Their spiritual lives are, have run aground and they've, they've been the, as a consequence, they've suffered great spiritual loss. That's what a shipwreck is. It's a total waste. And so what this means is that they're betraying somehow, they're, they're blaspheming, speaking against God. Well, that's not possible for Christians. Of course it is. 
And Paul treats these broken Christians, these Christians in reversionism, in this rejection of the truth of God's word, in this rebellion against God, he's turned them over to Satan. Whoa, what does that mean? Turned them over to Satan. Well, um, Paul is sending Timothy to Ephesus to do the work of building the church there. He's showing them, this is the passage of the book that tells about the pillar and ground of the truth is the local church. This is how we conduct ourselves in the church. These are the offices of the church. This is Paul's practical local church ecclesiology. It's important to know that in context. The other place that's very clear on this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The whole chapter, all 12 beautiful golden verses of 1 Corinthians 5. You have local church issues in 1 Corinthians. You have local church issues in Ephesus in 1 Timothy. Timothy, you're going to this place and there's already two that we have excommunicated to use, I guess, Latin words to describe what's happening. To paradidomy, to turn someone over to Satan, I have given over paradidomy, means that they have been remanded to the custody of the enemy. And you say, well, um, how does that work? I can give you a couple of summary statements about this in passing. First of all, Paul says to hand such a one over to Satan in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and it is a believer. Your Bible might say a so-called brother, but it doesn't say so-called in Greek. It says one called brother. So-called is an English idiom. I'm not so sure it communicates that in Greek to say someone called a brother. But Paul is talking about three types of people in 1 Corinthians 5. You've got the believers that are walking with the Lord. You have unbelievers, that's the world. And then you have this one called a brother who is a believer who has his father's wife, who is functioning in a sexual perversion that is denying the gospel. His actions are denying his position in Christ. And so he's called a brother, but he is different from the world and you treat him differently from the world. It's very important in 1 Corinthians 5. These men are not the world where they're coming in out of the world and you're sharing Christ with them. They are, they are of us, but they're behaving as the world in their denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these ones, he says, I have handed over to Satan. Same thing in 1 Corinthians 5. And the, the reason in both cases, why does Paul give Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan? Why does he do that in verse 20? so that they may be taught not to blaspheme for their own good. It's not a moment of self-righteousness for Paul. It's not really an apostolic only authority thing because he tells the Corinthian church, they should have already done this and they're arrogant for not doing this. The churches are responsible to make this decision, to make this determination. And however, a local, he doesn't tell a local church how to do it, but it's a responsibility that's incumbent upon a local church to carry the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ in honor and to separate from the leaven of our own ranks that denies it. And that's what's going on here with these men. Now, the man in 1 Corinthians is in sexual lifestyle sin. The men here in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 are denying the gospel. They're blaspheming. Now, finally, this is the most important point of this in my understanding. In the seven letters to the churches in Ephesus, so churches in, uh, in Asia, minor, 
that, that the Lord Jesus sends through the Apostle John. They're in red letters in your red letter Bible, Revelation 2 and 3. There are these seven letters. And each one begins with, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia. Write this. We've always struggled with this word angel. In the most angel populated book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, all of a sudden, when we read about angels involved with churches, we have to say, well, it can't mean an angel. But wait a second. What if the word angel is consistently used in Revelation by the same writer? What if the Apostle John is talking about something that is real, that is real, like we read in Hebrews, that all angels, the angels are ministering spirits sent to render aid to those who will inherit eternal life. What if... There is a judicial function that angels have. And then when the Lord Jesus says to the angel of the church, right, and then he gives their, their successes and he marks out their failures and says, fix the failures or you're going to lose your witness. You're going to lose your candlestick. That's Revelation 2 and 3. What if there is a judicial function in that context in which angels actually are affiliated and associated with local churches? Here's what I'm trying to say. When you remove someone from your family, from the church family, and say, we cannot have a meal with you, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when you do this, Paul says that is the same thing as turning them over to Satan. And here's the idea. Inside the circle, not to use pagan imagery or anything, but there is, there is a bond that exists within a local church that has, in Revelation 2 and 3, a, an angel associated with it. And outside of that bond, there's another angel. And he's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In my understanding, the family provides a measure of divine, angelic protection, nurture, aid, things the supernatural and invisible to us. But I, I just putting Revelation 2 and 3, that angel just means angel. Believe me, pastors are no angels. That the, the revelation two and three, that these are pastors, the only place in the Bible that they're called, they're called angels. You couldn't build a theology out of that. I don't think faithfully with, with sound hermeneutics. I know people that have love them, but I don't think that's right. I believe that what you have here is that outside God's design, his institution of local church, there is the enemy. And so that this is not a dogmatic argument that you've got to be affiliated with the local church. But I would say, I don't want to be uh, over in the environs of Satan. I don't want to be in that realm. I want to belong to his family. Now, born again into Christ, every believer is part of the body of Christ. These men are not being removed from the body of Christ. They cannot, be, they cannot lose their salvation, but they are being removed from the influence and association here to be hurt disciplined so that they can be brought back. Now it is discipline. And that's the same thing in first Corinthians five. So that they, the, for the destruction of their body, so their spirit may be saved. Now, is this really what's going on to hand it over to Satan? It's where Paul goes. It's the doctrine he's teaching. This is the doctrine of what Satan can do to people. If you ask the question of the Bible, what can Satan do to people? First Corinthians five, he can destroy the body. Is that the only place where Satan is able, has a leash that's just long enough to let him hurt people's bodies? Is that the only place in the Bible where that occurs? Of course not. Where else do we see Satan with the privilege, with the access, with the, the, the enough leash, as it were, to hurt a human being? That's 
the most Satan, uh, the most revelation we have in the Bible about the enemy of God is the book of Job. Job 1 through 3. It's what Satan is allowed to do. And apparently he is chained out. He's tied out. He can't do more than God lets him do. And he's certainly not serving God intentionally. But he's got enough leash where if you get put into his yard, that's a very bad place to be. And so we're supposed to be scared to death, not like the sin unto death of being in that environment. Now, this sounds really awful. If that's true, if you're saying that he's being given over to God's enemy, that, that seems really cruel. But what it is, is it's, a, it's ice water in the face of somebody that is in desperate need of waking up. And 1 Corinthians 5 is followed by a letter and then another letter, which we have as 2 Corinthians. We don't have the middle one. The fourth letter Paul wrote, wrote to the Corinthians that we know of is, this, is the letter 2 Corinthians. And he says in chapter 1, restore the man that was out because he's come back and welcome him back so that you don't heap sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, what he says in 1 Corinthians 5 in discipline is undone in 2 Corinthians 1 because he has repented. That's he's changed his mind. He's come back to the Lord. Can, can, a, can a believer come back to the Lord? Yes, it's, it happens. Sometimes you have to get that horrible outcome where he says, I've given this one over to Satan. That's my theological explanation. Uh, hopefully it hasn't been too much of a thumbnail sketch, but I did want to explain that as we, as we just kind of skim through um, 1 Timothy. And it is, I know it's a, it's, a, it's a skim, it's a blast through. So here's the charge. This is the charge I'm entrusting to you, child Timothy, according to the prophecies made beforehand concerning you, so that by them you may wage the good war by having faith and a good conscience. So this is, this is what I'm, I'm giving you, something to work with, with the awesome gift that you've been given is what he's getting at. And this faith and good conscience, some have, have after rejecting the faith and good conscience, that's the, the stock and trade of the Christian walk, They've suffered shipwreck concerning the faith. They've left the truth and they've embraced the lie and they're now communicating it. Of whom, of such ones are Huminios and Alexandros, whom I have given over to Satan so they may be taught not to blaspheme. So the reason that they've been handed over is for their recovery so they may be taught not to blaspheme. Now, I think it's parallel to being a horrible thing or a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And uh, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and uh, scourges with a whip every son whom he receives. And I believe that you and I need to remember that we are indeed at war. Let's talk about fighting and warring in, in Paul's letters. We, of course, have the classic passage we've already been through in the, in the summary life of Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, where the war that we wage is not against fresh, flesh and blood, and, 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 but against powers and principalities. This is the war I believe that Paul is talking about. You and I are at war. It's a spiritual war. The battlefield is our thinking. The war, the, the weapons are our concepts and the, the, the battlefield wins are when you believe the truth and then do it. And the battlefield losses are when you believe the lie and do not the truth. When you get confused or deceived by God's enemy as the woman in the garden, the place to learn how Satan fights is Genesis chapter three, the argument between uh, Eve and the serpent. The first thing we know about Satan is he lies about God. He denies his word. He possesses earthly creatures to, to speak through them. And, uh, and the, the main goal is to get you to disobey God after he's deceived you. He's lied to you about what God expects or what God, how much it matters what God said. And then if you can act on your unbelief, 
then he wins. That's the idea of Satan's fighting, and this is the nature of our war. In 1 Timothy 1.18, we have this word, strakuo. The word is spelled S-T-R-A-T-E-U-O in Greek, and I have the Greek word up here, strakuo, and I've spelled it out in English, uh, all caps here, and it means to fight like a soldier, to fight in war, to wage. See, in English, for a verb that says we war, we don't usually use war as a verb. We've got to throw a word wage in there. We wage war, right? You fight battles, you wage war, you know, that kind of thing. So try not to wage battle. That doesn't sound right for some reason, but to engage in battle, to, uh, to, to, that's the idea of this word uh, fighting. I think the word in English war works because you have this word stratuo, and then you have the next word stratea, military engagement or battle, the conduct of warfare. So you have, we wage war, there is a war, and we're a warrior, stratiot, the, the, the person that does the fighting. We have all three. And, um, and so I think that that's probably why we've translated it, we wage war. And it means to fight like in a military conflict. And then he says, fight the good fight. And he means the pitched battle. So Paul elsewhere uses different language to say, fight the good fight. It's a common thing he's thinking about. And it's certainly the same concept, but it's a different illustration. In this case, you have your plate carrier and all the stuff hung on it, all the, all the magazine carriers and all the grenades and, and all the equipment. And you've got your helmet on and you've got your, uh, your, your M4 carbine with an ACOG. And, and all the goodies on it, probably a 203, so you have a, laser, a rocket launcher on the bottom, I'm sorry, a grenade launcher on the bottom, M203 40 millimeter grenade launcher, really neat thing. And you've got all this equipment and you're, you're, you're like, how can I hold it all up? It's well, it's because you've, you've worked in it so much and you've been on so many ruck marches with it that you can carry all that weight and, uh, and you're in the fight. And, and, uh, and you, you know what to do because you've trained and, um, it's life or death and there are people being shot all around you and, uh, and you're shooting back and you're covering your friend and you're trying to save their lives as you advance on your enemy's object and your objective in the enemy, um, where, where the enemy is. And so this is the, the language of this type of thing. It's not boxing ring material. We're about to, I'll show you the boxing ring and Paul, he talks about that too. But here he's talking about going to war. Paul likes the military illustration. Um, and he talks about himself this way that he fights in, uh, in uh, Second Timothy, um, and, uh, and a soldier uh, fights for his, his officers and so forth. But he also uses farming, and he, and he uses all kinds of illustrations. Well, this is just an illustration to talk about the fight that we're, we're, we're in. And uh, I think if, if you put the military flavor to it, then you get a little bit more seriousness. This is not a prize fight where you get knocked out, and then they wake you up, and then you, you, know, you recover from your concussion, and then you go home, and everybody's fine. This is, this is spiritual life and death. That's 1 Timothy 1.18. In 1 Timothy 6.12 and 2 Timothy 4.7, that's where you have agonizomai, A-G-O-N-I-Z-O-M-A-I, agonizomai, a verb that means to struggle, to fight, compete in a contest. It can also mean to run a race, to agonizomai. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 is talking about. It says run the race set before you. It's this word, but it doesn't just mean a race. It means the contest. It means the struggle, whatever the struggle is. And so it, it is often used to mean fighting, to, to fight like in a prize fight, like in an Olympic boxing match, which they had in Paul's day. An agona is a contest or fight. So he says, agonizomai, the kalos agona. 
fight the good fight. And that's, that's again, um, 1 Timothy 6.12 and 2 Timothy 4.17. So he does use this phrase, but here it's, it's got that military illustration to it. Now, um, the one thing I don't have on the screen, but I want to remind you of is what does he mean by good? What's the word good? What's a good fight? What's the good fight? Don't just fight any fight, but fight the kalos, K-A-L-O-S. That's the kind of fight he wants you to fight. Now, there's two words, stock words in Greek for good. And uh, they have a little bit of overlap, but sometimes we'll bring out a little bit of nuance between the two meanings. And he's going to use the other word for good when he talks about conscience. But here, uh, that's agath uh, agathos, good of intrinsic value is kind of our stock definition for agathos. It's the Greek concept of the good. Kalos is not that. Kalos is the attractive. Kalos is a good painting. Kalos is, is good proportioned. Kalos is attractive because properly symmetrical. And so it could be translated beautiful. It's an aesthetic sense of good. Now, is the agathos, the intrinsic good, aesthetically pleasing? Of course. Agathos is kalos. Is kalos agathos? Well, it depends on the nature of the kalos thing. An attractive person, as Proverbs says, may be uh, a, a, a ring in a pig's snout. You know, a woman without, I forget, without, I think it's sense or wisdom or something, is like a ring in a, a, a beautiful gold ornament in a pig's snout, right? That, that's, that's beautiful, but it's ugly. It's not, it's not agathos. It's not good of intrinsic value. It's externally. And so, but see, this is this word kalos, this good gets into the idea of aesthetics of that, which is beautiful. I hope you know that philosophers have struggled with the great three questions. What is true? What is good? Agathos, what is morally, ethically good? And what is beautiful? And the thing is, that these three questions the philosophers will never really get to a good answer to unless they start with God. The greatest philosopher of the Bible is Solomon. He tells you, start with the fear of the Lord or you know nothing. The great three questions of all philosophy resolve in Jesus Christ. The truly good, the truly honest and true, and the truly beautiful. And what do I mean by beautiful? I mean that there is a loveliness that is far beyond anything we can see in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the sense I think we mean here is that the fight he wants you to fight is something that your God will look at you, your, your savior at the judgment seat of Christ and say, what you, you did a beautiful piece of work here. It's like that. It was, it was pleasing to me to see the agathos that you brought forth and the power of the spirit that he brought forth through you in the war you waged. It was beautiful work. That's the idea of Kalos. I wanted to kind of bring that out. The way you translate it, you say good. It's the good fight. But, but there's, there, isn't that interesting, the color that Paul chooses to say, kalos, the attractive, the symmetrical, the aesthetically pleasing fight. Let's talk about some theology now. The power to wage the good war from what Paul just taught us. He just gave us a huge gold brick of systematic theology in our terms of our spiritual lives and waging the war. So I have, I think, 6 or 12, 15, 20 points on the power to wage the war is probably more like six points. But first, I want to say that prophecy in the New Testament, Old Testament, is direct special revelation from God. That's what we mean when we say, when he says a prophecy was spoken about you. My favorite uh, little hint prophecy in the New Testament is Agabus in Acts chapter eleven twenty eight, which tells you why the Apostle Paul went to Jerusalem the first time, because there was a prophecy about the sufferings. 
Um, prophecy is when someone has a message from God and they're speaking that message to men. And it's not their message. It's God's message. It's not the prophecy of me. It's the prophecy of God that he gave to me. And so it's always God speaking, but he puts a label on the cassette uh, for depending on who he's sending it through. So we've got what God said through Jeremiah, what God said through Samuel, what God said, you know, and, and again, the place to see prophecy in action where God is speaking directly to a prophet and telling him what he wants. My favorite place is 1 Samuel chapter 16 to get an idea of what it's like for an Old Testament prophet or any, I think a New Testament prophet to interact with God. It's an intimacy and a conversation that I do not believe we're having now. And it's a prophetic thing. God is talking to Samuel, but the other people around Samuel are not hearing God say, no, I've rejected him. But, but Samuel and God are having an internal dialogue and for the outsiders that are Jesse's family, as he's going through who to pick for the next king, all they know is Samuel saying, well, the Lord has rejected this one and the Lord has rejected this one. And then have you any other children? They just know what the prophet is saying. But inside, as we read for Samuel 16, God is speaking to Samuel and it's an interest. Read it. It's, it's like to, to, to shoot the video of it. You have to have someone speaking that no one else hears. And it's in Samuel's head, as it were, but he hears him. And that is how God calls Samuel. He comes and presents himself before Eli. You called me? No, I didn't call you. We didn't hear anything. But, but Samuel heard God's voice like it was an audible voice. And this is prophecy. This is apparently one of the ways that God would reveal himself and reveal his message. He's certainly uh, very explicit in 1 Samuel. The recipients of prophecy, secondly, are called prophets. I think that's a really good thing for us to remember because sometimes we get these ideas confused. Wayne Grudem has in his understanding of systematic theology as what we call a continuation as he believes the gift of prophecy in the church age continues today. He believes in some sort of second tier prophet that isn't on the same authority as God's word, but uh, nevertheless is someone speaking forth from God. And, and we who are cessationists will come to this idea and say, well, why, why would you say that the prophet today who just God told me, and I'm going to tell you, why would you say that this is not of the same authority as the scriptures? What's the difference? Because it gets to the definition of the new Testament. What is the scripture? Why do we read Mark? Why do we care what Mark has to say? Well, he's talking about Jesus. There were lots of books in the early church era about Jesus that were not Bible. A lot of crazy things are written about Jesus and the, the gospel of Peter and there's a gospel, I think, of Paul. There's a gospel of Thomas. You've heard of that. There's lots of, there's a gospel of Judas. Tons of books have been written throughout world history. And, but Mark is scripture. What makes Mark scripture? Well, we can say it's apostolic. Mark is working under the ministry of the apostle Peter, according to legend. That's, I think, true. But I think there's something more. Peter did not write Mark. Peter supervised Mark. Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. What are we reading Luke for in Acts? This is probably a Greek, probably a Gentile. That's not even a Jew writing the New Testament scripture. The only case we know of everything else written by Jews in the New Testament. If, and and that's, a, that's a conjecture that Luke wasn't one of them. Luke is writing to a Greek world for sure, but he's not an apostle. Why do we listen to Luke? Mark and Luke are, are prophets. They're New Testament prophets. And so um, I'm not saying Mark or Luke had to be the ones. There are probably dozens and dozens of prophets in the early church. And here, 
somebody, it doesn't even say who, I suspect it was the Apostle Paul, prophesied direct revelation from God, like he's telling us now about what Peter was for. I'm sorry, what, what, I'm sorry, what Timothy was for, what God was going to do with Timothy. So the recipients of prophecy are called prophets. Third, Timothy's ministry was the subject of direct special revelation. Timothy's ministry, therefore, when, when it says that there was a prophecy made about you and what you would do, that's saying that what you're going to do in your service to God was direct revelation from God. Timothy did not have the gospel of Matthew, as, as, as far as we know. He didn't have Matthew, the apostles, take on apostleship, on, I'm sorry, on discipleship and the mission. He had Paul directly revealing what Paul knew from the Lord Jesus and what the Holy Spirit led Paul to write and to say that was prophetic early church, direct revelation from God. You and I have the apostle Matthew on what discipleship is. We know what Jesus expects of us and we have his instructions for the church age. In fact, I contend that the entirety of the gospel of Matthew is written for the benefit of the church, the body of Christ, and that's why it concludes in the resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus with what we call the Great Commission, the instructions that we have. So you and I have direct special revelation about our personal work. We don't have it as detailed, perhaps, as Timothy did. It's not like God saying you with, with your name written in the text, but it says you go make disciples of the nations. You disciples make disciples of the nations by teaching them and so forth, by baptizing them and teaching them to keep all that I've commanded you. So, so I want to say there's a parallel between Timothy and you and me. You can find your calling, your work, not necessarily your little piece of it, but generally what you and I are supposed to be about in the prophetic word of God. Fourth, by means of this special word in Timothy's case concerning what he would do, he was to be strengthened for the fight before him. Now notice the pattern. The word of God that was spoken over Timothy was the means by which he would carry out his work. It was the fortification. It was the strength for him to go forward. He needed God's word to do God's work. And I think that's our pattern. So I, I would say there's a unique thing happening early church where Paul is prophesied about Timothy in a, in a personal way. But I'd say that there is a generic thing here too, where it's through the word of God that you and I are equipped to do God's work. And I, and I mean very personally, and it works in every individual case. Last hour, Will was talking about snowflakes, since not the kind that we're, we're generating in our public schools today, but the ones that are falling outside. Anyway, um, he was talking about uh, the way snowflakes under the microscope are all gazillions of them, all individual, unique. And that's true about your spiritual life. That's true about you and God's work that he's going to do, wants to do through you. But there is a mission that we're all on. We're all in the same work. We're all part of the same body. We're not some sort of uh, hive of, uh, of amorphous automatons out doing our own thing. We're all supposed to be you know, sh snuggled in together in the formation, shield to shield, locked together to do the work that God has us doing together. So anyway, um, verse, I'm sorry, point, uh, I'm sorry. These are observation points. The four points that I had for you to see that the, the relationship between God's word and Timothy's ability to wage the war. And again, the language Paul says is <clears throat> this command or this, um, this charge I'm trusting to you, Timothy, my son or my child, literally, in accordance to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by these prophecies, you would fight the good fight. That's what I'm trying to zero in on. By the prophecies, you would, be, you would wage the good warfare. 
So principle number one, by way of application, God gives us the equipment we need to do the work he wants us to do. I think that's an overriding principle throughout all of scripture. He told Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them this message of destruction because of their wickedness. Jonah had everything in that statement from God that would make him successful on the mission. Do you know how we know that? Because after all the, all the rebellion and the storm and the fish and all the, okay, Lord, I'll go. When he finally gets to Nineveh, he, all he does is say what God told him to say and they repent and he's a successful prophet immediately. His message is instantly successful. God gave him everything he needed. He had sandals that was taken care of. He has the prophetic word. Now you just need to go say it. When God has a mission for you, he provides the equipment to do it. He is a wonderful logistician. He is the infinitely perfect and glorious, loving and righteous commander. He knows exactly what he wants to do through you and he provides you the means to do it. And so you and I, in a moment of spiritual weakness, in a, a, a time of looking at the wind and the waves and the storm and the struggle, we will look at the trouble and we will not look at God and we will say, I cannot do this, whatever this is. I cannot do this thing that is in front of me and not to do it will violate my responsibilities. It'll violate my, my commitments. It will deny the gospel because I'm not letting my yes be yes. I'm not representing Christ by being a person of truth. Something will come up where you're like, I can't do the thing that I'm obviously required by God to do. I think you should look back at what Paul says to Timothy. You should look back at throughout the scriptures and grab hold of this principle. God always gives us the equipment we need to do the work he wants us to do. You are and your troubles are not more powerful than the infinite power of God, the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And there's always sufficient equipment to do the work. He doesn't, as we used to say, the, the soldiers want to go home at the end of the day. You know, it's federal time, so it's like 4.30 <laughs> Sorry, 1630 hours, but they've been at it since 6 a.m. So, so they want to get home and whatever they're going to do with their time, because they've got lots of pressing matters as 19 year old men uh, to do in the evening. And, uh, and so they're in a hurry to get home, but you know, they can't go home until the motor pool gets swept. That's one of the key things that always has to be done. The Sergeant Major, one of his main tasks, according to the 19 year old soldier is making sure the motor pool, that's where the tanks are all parked or the trucks or whatever, that it gets swept. It's this giant concrete space full of military vehicles and a big building overhang thing where they can work on them. And, uh, and so everywhere on every military installation where there's a motor pool, at whatever the 1600, the 4 p.m. or 5 p.m. or if they've had to stay late, could even be 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. That's 2200 hours. Those soldiers are out there with these really sad faces and these push brooms and they hold them like this and they walk like Charlie Brown and Christmas time is here. They're, they're, they're just sad and they're ksh, 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 pacing themselves. Ksh, ksh, ksh. None of this, none of this like, you know, working the push. They're and they're all pushing the broom because there's no getting out of closing formation until the motor pool is swept. The sergeant major comes and looks at it and says, okay, form it up. We can go home. And here's the horrible thing. What if somebody stole all the brooms as a prank and private Joe Snuffy couldn't sweep the motor pool? What a horrible thought. It's 430. 
Sergeant Major said that he and his wife had plans tonight and we better finish on time because he's going he's gonna to eat our lunch if, if we don't and his wife's going to be upset. But we don't have any brooms. Bravo Company over here is laughing as they're released from their formation because they stole all the brooms. And so it's a horrible thought to tell the poor soldiers to make bricks without straw, sweep the motor pool with no brooms. Some enterprising person sneaks away in their privately owned vehicle to Home Depot, buys a bunch of push brooms, comes back and start sweeping the motor pool because we're not getting home until it's done. The point I'm trying to make in my silly illustration is that um, God would never tell you to sweep the motor pool and not provide you a broom or a broom truck or something more powerful than you can imagine to do what he wants you to do. And Timothy has the prophecies that have been spoken over him, which equip him to do the work. And you have the prophetic word of God that equip you. Second, the equipping is always God's word and the power of God's spirit. The equipping of God to do the work that he wants us to do, just like with Timothy, will be God's word. It was a prophetic word spoken to Timothy. It's a written word to us, but it is in the power of God's spirit. The word of God without the Holy Spirit is dead words on a page. Most of probably scholarship and academic is living here. But the Holy Spirit without the word is subjective mysticism. And uh, back to the, the concept of conscience. They, they've rejected the faith in a good conscience. They don't have the absolute standard external and the internal workings with that standard to be functioning in their spiritual lives, to think God's thoughts and do his work. So the, the second principle, the, the equipping is always God's word and the power of God's spirit. And third, we have God's word in the Bible today. That is the locus where we will be certain we know we have what God has said. This is the charge I'm entrusting you, child Timothy, according to the prophecies made before concerning you, so that by these prophecies, you may wage the good war by having faith and a good conscience, which faith and good conscience, some after rejecting these have suffered shipwreck concerning the faith, whom are Hymenaeus, Alexandros, whom I have given over to Satan so that they might be taught not to blaspheme. I want to close this morning with a discussion of holding faith and a good conscience. Echo, the word, stock word for to have, translated King James, holding faith and a good conscience, probably a good translation by context. First, I want to say that faith, pistis, pistis, either refers to the belief one holds, your belief itself, my faith, like we think of faith as the believing, or that which is believed, the faithful word, the faith, and or God who has spoken the word. It Faith, see, we, we, we read faith and we think it just means believing. Um, I think by context, I'm leaning toward this. It's hard to tell sometimes because there's a, what's the difference between my believing it or it being faithful? You know, they're the really close ideas. In context, I think it is the faith. It is the external standard. The good conscience has important implications that make me think this. The good conscience, by the agathos, the good of intrinsic value conscience, meaning it's been calibrated by God's righteousness. The good conscience implies that it's good and that it's not been corrupted with false standards, correctly calibrated. Do you know what I mean by calibrated conscience? Let me illustrate that. If you say 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 to somebody that's part of the woke community, part of the, the, the snowflake, um, I can't be offended by any statements that might imply that I'm not perfect or, or that I have any, any flaws. 
if you tell someone that these sins forfeit inheritance of the kingdom of God, these sins prevent, these par- people characterized by these things are unbelievers, is what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. If you, if you say that to the popular morality of our day, then they are defiled. They, are, they rend their garments. They call you hate, hate speech, bigot, uh, uh, homophobe, whatever horrible thing, or, or find a way to say racist to really, to really uh, destroy someone. Right? Because you've said what the scriptures say. By the way, there's nothing about race in that passage. That we're one race, human race. Racism's a satanic deception. But sexual sin's a real problem. It's a, that's another satanic deception. People that have been deceived have consciences that have been miscalibrated. The, when Jesus said, you said, I'm the son. When he said, you said it to the, to the religious leaders in his trial on the night uh, of his, of his trial before Caiaphas, after being betrayed by Judas, they say, uh, he says, and I'll, and I will, uh, how does he say it? I forget the, it's in Matthew 27, but it's a, it's a statement of his deity. And the minute he reveals himself and says, you know, I'm going to rise up again. Um, they tear their garments and rush at him. When, when Stephen says you've betrayed Jesus and, uh, and, and the, the word is against you, and I see Jesus at the right hand of glory standing. The people are raging. They're gnashing their teeth because their consciences are, are demonically calibrated. They, are, they believed false doctrines, doctrines of demons, and they have adjusted their moral sense, their sense of right and wrong, their conscience, based on false teaching. This is what I mean by a calibrated conscience. See, a good conscience has been co- calibrated by an external divine standard. God's word, not what I feel, but what God says. And so my internal workings, my ability to resolve right and wrong need that revelation from God. And that's what a good conscience is. Second, it's good because the standard to which has been calibrated is God's word, not, not some other external or internal factor or some other system of teaching. And a conscience is good because it's not been defiled by a sinful choice, which would go against the standards. Now, this is important once I'm calibrated, I know the truth. What if I sin against the truth? What does my conscience do? Bop, 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 bop. Yeah, something's, something's wrong here. Abort, abort. You've, you've failed. We need to fix this. Your conscience gets calibrated. You can sear it and try to suppress it and say, oh, I'm not going to listen to the alarm. Just kind of cover it up. And then it's deep down going off and there's something wrong emotionally. I'm, I'm you know, tr- troubled, but I'm not dealing with what my conscience is telling me. You know, this, this is the inner workings of the human being. We can suppress our conscience, but when you have it calibrated with God's word and then you violate God's word, your conscience is going to tell you because that's how you're made. The external divine standard has become internalized in your sense of right and wrong. And now it's tripping. It's going off. Third, the faith, the truth of God's self-revelation is the external standard, which must direct us. If the first one, faith in a good conscience, isn't talking about this faith, if it's talking about your exercise of faith, then the last one, their shipwreck with respect to the faith is. And this is what a good conscience is, again, calibrated by this external standard. Fourth, good conscience is the eternal, sorry, the internal equipment God has given us to live by that standard. I want to talk about conscience, just the final thing. What is our conscience? Do you know what a conscience is? Where do we get the idea? You know, some people, all they know is Jiminy Cricket right? It's Pinocchio has a conscience, at least for a little while in the story, Jiminy Cricket actually dies pretty early on. 
the, 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 the wooden headed uh, doll is going to, um, to violate his conscience where it actually dies. Um, but a conscience is this word, and I didn't come up with it. It's in the Greek. It's this word, sunidesis, S-U-N-E-I-D-E-S-I-S, consistently used, and we always translate it conscience. Now, it isn't your consciousness. That's a different word, and it's not a, a biblical word. But conscience is one, and what does it mean? S-U-N-E-I-D, long E, E-S-I-S. Etymologically, that means the origin of the pieces of the word, soon and idasis. You put those two together, you get, you know, the two words, soon is with or together, and idasis is uh, as awareness or understanding or, or, or view. And so it's the coming together of views or coming together of understandings. What? Well, think about it. I have a truth loaded in my evaluator. I have the, the answer key here. And someone submits a test, and I test it against the answer key. Answer key corrects, says this is right or wrong. It passes or fails, right? That's the two things coming together. That's what your conscience is. It's loaded with the standard, external impulse comes in, and external input comes in, and you evaluate based on the standard. And you don't even think about it. You know right and wrong. Maybe you're not comfortable or good yet articulating. But you could say something like we tend to say, it shouldn't be like that, or that's not right, or what he did was wrong. That's your conscience speaking. And the question is, for each one of us, is, well, how is my conscience calibrated? Has it been developed by the, the one who designed it, or has it been corrupted by the one who opposes him? And that's really the idea of a good conscience. So it's the bringing of two things together and the sense of internal capacity to render judgments by making, sorry, the, the sense of an internal capacity to render judgments by making comparisons. That's the idea of conscience. When Paul says back to 1 Corinthians 5 and the turning the guy over to Satan, he says, you have been arrogant and you haven't mourned because you've said, basically, we're so gracious that we can have this guy that's committing incest and he's fine in our church. And they're boasting in their ignorance and their rebellion against God and their consciences aren't calibrated by God's word. He says, you should be mourning instead. And it's, it's demonstrating the seared conscience, not a good conscience there in Corinth. But if you pay attention to what Paul says to them, you will have a good conscience. Six, the way to destroy your spiritual life is clearly presented in verse 19. Verse 19 tells you how to destroy your spiritual life. Please do not push the red button because it is a doozy. You reject the truth of God's word by not believing it so that your conscience becomes defiled. How? Well, you start loading it with things that aren't true and you start making decisions on the basis of falsehood. Your conscience is a bad conscience. It's a, a defiled conscience. So you reject the truth of God's word by not believing it so that your conscience becomes defiled. And eighth, having no divi divine standard for your conscience, you shut out God's influence on your choices. And now you're not really operating in the filling of the spirit. You're not walking according to the word of Christ. It's not richly dwelling within you. So you don't have the equipment that God wants you to have to make your choices. So you make whatever seems right to you and you're whatever the world does and look left and look right and see what everyone else is doing. And, and now your conscience is herd bound, whatever the crowd is saying. Ninth, this is shipwreck with respect to the faith. That's what he means that because they've rejected faith in a good conscience, they've suffered shipwreck of the faith, shipwreck of the faith. That's one of my favorite phrases to describe the consequence of rejection of God's word shipwreck with respect to the faith. And why is it such a good word? Because shipwreck in Paul's day, he had been through one. 
It means gross financial ruin through the destruction of valuable resources. That's what a shipwreck is. Shipwreck, well, does that mean we're swimming and there's sharks? That's not the point of the shipwreck. The point is that you lost your cargo and you lost your vessel. You lost a business and all its assets in one, one rock, one rock strike. That's the loss and it's the waste. So when you have shipwreck with respect to the faith, I think it's a reference to the waste of a perfectly functional, blessed, wonderful spiritual life that should hear a well done, thou good and faithful servant at the judgment seat of Christ. Thank you for joining me today. It's been a blessing to spend some time thinking about conscience and faith with you in First Timothy. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of God, which is alive and powerful. We thank you for the apostle Paul and his ministry to Timothy, his care that he took with this young man to strengthen him and his care for the church in Ephesus, which is really his focus, that he needed Timothy to be who Timothy should be so that Ephesus, that the church in Ephesus could be trained the way it needed to be trained. Thank you for how all these things fit together and for your great, marvelous grace in letting us be witness to these things and internalize them so that we can pay attention to your word. We can have a good faith. I mean, uh, we, can, we can be aligned with the faith and have a good conscience. Make us successful as you made Timothy successful as we pay attention to your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.